throughout the Bible, we read God smiting people for their sins and shortcomings. Why is God so full of judgment and punishment? And is Genesis, specifically his first 11 chapters, mythical? Yes, the two questions are sort of connected, so let's explore both in this episode. Welcome to What Do You Mean God Speaks, where we explore important ideas, insights, and stories in Christianity for the skeptics who want to understand religion, the Christians who have questions about their own beliefs, and everyone in between. I am Paul Sungwajung, and this is our seventh episode of the second season. Why does God punish? And is Genesis mythical? Genesis as story of stories. Before we continue our exploration of Genesis, I think we need to first deal with two questions. We touched on both of them before in this series, but we should consider them more in depth. First is that God pronounces judgment upon humanity many, many times in the Bible and brings down punishment either in the form of large-scale catastrophes or suffering that is passed down through generations. In Genesis, an example of the former is the great flood that wipes out every living, breathing thing on land. And the example of the latter is God's punishment on the first human couple for eating from the forbidden tree, which we explored in our previous episode. Why though? For horrific and terrible wrongdoings, punishments make sense, but the sheer scale of some of these punishments in the Bible seem to outweigh the wrongs that were done. And sometimes the punishment seems strange and non-sequitur, at least at first glance, like the ground becoming cursed because of what Adam did so that it produces thistles and thorns. What's that about? For those of you who listened to the previous episode, you should be able to more or less understand why the cursed ground was a punishment for Adam. And that is the first clue to understanding this whole thing, as we'll see by the end of this episode. But let's move over to the second question. Is Genesis, specifically its first 11 chapters, mythical? How we answer this question will give us another clue. Biblical scholars call the first 11 chapters of Genesis primeval history. This includes the creation of the cosmos, the creation of humanity, the Garden of Eden, the Fall, Cain and Abel, Noah and the Great Flood, and the Tower of Babel. And most scholars do not view these accounts as historical. They say these accounts belong rather to a particular literary genre, myth. They will immediately emphasize, though, that the word myth here does not mean that it's false. It means that these are the foundational stories that people tell about the world and themselves. That is, these accounts are stories that set up our most core beliefs about reality, about how the world is structured, and about who we are. Except, even that definition isn't helpful for most of us. That's because what we are interested in is this. Are these stories true? I mean, it's obvious that Genesis tells stories, and that these stories are about some of the most significant beliefs in Christianity. But are they true? And if they are true, in what sense are they true? Now, we know what it is for literal historical accounts to be true, and we know what it is for scientific accounts to be true. But according to these scholars, the primeval history of Genesis is neither. A scientific account or a historical account is true if what it reports is what 
quote-unquote, really happened in the past. But if the first 11 chapters in Genesis is not strictly historical, how can these accounts be true? I suspect that that was what was behind the question that someone asked me once in a talk that I gave about science and Christianity, specifically regarding the creation of humanity. See, he asked, so is Adam not a historical person? And that made me pause. Because in one sense, Adam represents all of humanity. Again, humanity in the Bible is not homo sapiens, but homo divinus, those who relate to God and represent God to each other and to the rest of creation. And Adam represents every one of us that does that. But in another sense, Adam is the first individual who is homo divinus. So I answer by saying something like, well, obviously, there has to be a first person who was the image of God. So yes, Adam is a historical person. And this sort of dual answer is how we need to understand the primeval history of Genesis. It is both every story and the first story about things. To explain what I mean, though, I'm going to have to do a bit of a detour and draw upon an understanding of myth and stories that is held by a psychologist, Jordan Peterson. Well, there are other similar positions, but his is the version that I'm using. Myth for Peterson is the abstracted crystallization of important stories, all the stories that guide your life. Uh, so what does he mean by that? Okay, so here's an example. Say you become inspired as a child by a person you know. You admire what she does and how she lives, and she's your hero. So as a child, you might have pretended to be her when you played with your friends. You might have imitated her action in school, maybe by standing up for your friends in trouble. Eventually, you become able to coherently tell her full story once you sufficiently develop your skills in speaking. You might even, after a while, become able to explain what makes her a hero, uh, from what she did and what she experienced and so on uh, in that story about her. But then, someone tells you about another inspiring person, another hero. Now he's very different. He has a different personality, different strengths, a different job. But you recognize that he's a hero too. Then you hear a story of yet another hero, then another, and another, and another. There are all stories about people doing heroic things, but they're all very different. Some are real, some are fictional. One was an explorer, another was a firefighter or a teacher, or a doctor, or a soldier, or a starship captain, or a wizard, and so on. But why are all these stories stories of a hero? Why do you recognize all of them as such? Well, perhaps all these stories share some common principle or definition of a hero, some virtues that they all have, or some something common to what they experienced or what they did. But there's something else to consider. Some stories are better than others. Some tell us about what being a hero is more clearly, more thoroughly, and more insightfully than the others. Then there's the best story. A story of a hero that is like all of these stories combined and then distilled into one profound narrative. It's still a story with particular characters and events, but it embodies everything important that we tell in any story about heroes. They're the kind where you find that it's very hard to add anything more to the story. It wouldn't give any further insight to what a hero is. And it's very hard to take anything out. That would take away something really important about what it is to be a hero. 
A mythical story is that kind of story. It's the crystallization of every story about a certain topic into a single baseline story. And the topics that mythical narratives explore tend to be the ones that enable us to understand our world and ourselves. And the primeval history of Genesis is composed of just such stories. Each narrative is about a key topic about our world and our lives. It's about what or who reality is. It is about what constitutes every possible world and how every world comes into being. It is about what humanity is. It is about our relation to reality and what distorts it. It is about hatred and murder. It is about civilization and tyranny. It is about wide-scale destruction that is brought upon humanity due to their evils. It is about the fate of human power and hegemony. Now, each of these topics can have many, many different stories attached to it. So think about the topic of hatred and murder. There are countless examples of how that occurs in history, and we can examine numerous factors and motivations that go into each case. But the story of Cain and Abel, which we will begin exploring next episode, is a story that sums up all of them. It describes, narratively speaking, every murder, or most of them in any case, but because it does so, it is also about the first murder. Now, this should connect to what I've been presenting in the previous episodes about Genesis. The creation of Adam and their lives in Eden describes all of humanity or what we could have been. But that's why it also is about the first humans. Their fall from eating from the forbidden tree describes what happened to them, but it is also what happens to every human being, every one of us, how we become alienated from God, from reality, and from each other. And I've also said that the account of creation in Genesis is true for those in the Stone Age, those in the Biblical times, us in our modern age, and even the ETs flying around in their UFOs. And that's because even though Genesis is based on the cosmology of ancient Middle Eastern civilizations, what it sets forth within that particular cultural framework is something that is true beyond that cosmology, something that is true for our modern cosmology, and will still be true even when our current scientific understanding becomes as outdated as the one in the Stone Ages. And all that's because it is a story that can encompass every story we have told and will ever tell about how the cosmos, any cosmos, comes to be. So what the primeval history of Genesis, the first 11 chapters, tell us are true in that sense. And if you haven't listened to the previous episodes on Genesis yet, keep that in mind and go check them out. All this, however, raises two questions. Well, at least two questions, since there can be other questions too, but I'm not covering those. The first is, why tell these kind of narratives, these mythical genres? I mean, if God indeed speaks through the Bible, whichever way you think that happens, why not just describe what, quote-unquote, really happened in the past? So, for example, why not describe the first historical murder exactly as it happened? Why not just describe the first humans in their natural habitat, like a, a nature or historical documentary? Why not give us a scientific account of how the cosmos came to be? And that part uh, we've already answered in the first two episodes of this season. So anyway, why this genre with all of these imagery and symbolism and so on? Simply put, if God is speaking through the Bible, wouldn't God just 
tell us straight, so to speak, and give us the strictly historical or scientific account of first events? And the answer is no. And the reason for this is, Genesis is presenting something that's far more significant than mere reports of past events. Our past is important to us because they guide our present and future. Our memory, for example, is used primarily for dealing with what we are experiencing now. And this is especially true for the primeval history of Genesis because its narratives compose the very framework through which Christianity has understood reality, the world, and humanity for all of its history. And what that means is, these narratives describe something far more than some isolated incidents that happened in a distant past. They're describing what has been happening in all of history until now, including the first time it happened. But there's a second question, which is this. Why tell narratives? I mean, if what Genesis is trying to set forth are these larger truths about how to understand our world beyond just single past events, then why not just present something like a a philosophical treatise? Uh, Why, for example, tell a story about hatred and murder rather than a reflection and an explanation of what motives, thinking, and mindset that lead to every murder? After all, isn't that what this series has been doing in the episodes about Genesis so far by explaining the kind of larger truths that these narratives are teaching us? Why not just do that to begin with? And the answer is because what we experience are stories. What we experience are things that happen rather than some principles or truths that underlie how they happen. So the explanation of the kind that I present uh, in this series are abstract. They enable us to understand what we experience in our lives. I mean, hopefully it does. But it is not the experience itself. I could explain, for example, that when we distrust God that speaks, we disengage from reality, become fearful of our vulnerabilities, and begin to suspect any setback or hardship in our lives as attacks by hostile reality. But those are explanations. What we experience are concrete happenings, specific moments when you become distrustful of engaging reality in good faith because of some very specific setbacks and limitations that are plaguing your life, or that time when you become suspicious of actual people and so on. So say, when you suspect that God is deceiving you and respond by eating from a forbidden tree. That is what happens. There are principles that govern how things happen, yes, but stories tell what happens when these principles unfold and play out in real life. And a story that sums up how this unfolds every time is the kind of stories that the first 11 chapters of Genesis are presenting us. And that brings us back to the question of what is happening in Genesis when God pronounces judgment upon people. So let me first sum up what I've been saying in this episode so far in this way. The primeval history in Genesis is describing how reality unfolds itself, for lack of better words. Or to put it differently, these narratives describe not merely what happened in some isolated past events, but what happens throughout all of history, how reality unfolds every time something similar happens. So for example, it describes not just what happened when the first human beings fell away from God, but what happens every time a human being falls away. 
The particular imagery and the storytelling depends on the particular cultural framework to which God's message is accommodated to. Check the first two episodes on this season about the idea of accommodation. But all this raises an interesting point, because if that's what Genesis is describing, what God speaks as pronouncement of judgment in these narratives is part of how reality unfolds in times like that, and that's a very different understanding of what a judgment from God is supposed to be about. Let me explain the difference with this question. Say we fail at properly addressing the current climate crisis, and the climate catastrophes fall upon our world. Is that a judgment from God? And many people would say no, and for some good reasons. Climate catastrophes would disproportionately affect the poorest peoples and nations who are arguably the least responsible, not to mention all the different species of life that will be ill-affected by it. So wouldn't it be unfair and cruel for God to inflict such large-scale punishment? And perhaps most important of all, such catastrophes are simply natural consequences of what we have done based on how our physical world and its weather systems work. God does not need to intervene to bring about these catastrophes. What happens is simply how, shall I say it, reality unfolds. See, there is a reason why the very first episode of this series, Season 1, Episode 1, was about making this one assertion. God is not simply an all-powerful entity in our world. If we were to use non-religious word for God, it would be reality. And that's because everything we say of reality today is what those who believed in God once said of God. And the series began with this because this addresses what I believe lies at the root of many of our misconceptions about God today. And in this case, the misconception led to this. There's a strong tendency to think about judgment from God in the following way. There's a world and how it normally works, including the consequences of our actions. Then there's God, who is an additional entity who adds further, and perhaps arbitrary, punishment in forms of disasters or curses. If he destroy our environment and cause storms, droughts, and heat waves, that's just how the world works, how reality is. But what God does is something else, something personal. However, there is no such dividing line. God is reality, or in the words that I repeatedly said in the previous episodes, all of reality is God speaking. Now, I've said that reality is like a speech, but that's actually getting it backward. Our speech is like reality, and that's why all the laws of nature that our science discovers describe reality, which is again God speaking, and that's why all of history we can describe is God speaking. That's why what happens all around us, how reality unfolds in our lives, is God speaking. And that means the consequences of man-made climate change is also God speaking. But does that mean that we should regard, say, the indiscriminate destruction of life and property caused by climate change as God personally punishing us? And again, the answer is no. It's actually the opposite. Now, I'm going to say something that will sound strange, but it is true. One thing that modern naturalistic and, dare I say, atheistic outlook can teach those of us who believe in God today is that there is an 
impersonality to what God speaks. How can this be? Haven't I been saying that the main point of contention between those who believe in God and those who do not is that reality is personal, that reality is who rather than a what? And well, yes, but not everything God speaks is personally about us and for us. We explore that in this very season in episode 3 on what is the purpose of it all. In the Genesis account of creation, God speaks forth the world with structures and purposes that isn't about us, even though we were created to live in that world and blessed which we are often failing to do. What this means is that there are ways that reality unfolds that won't play favoritism for our sake. Reality unfolds the way it unfolds, period, and that is what God speaks. And even in our very human legal system, this impersonality is part of justice. We call it impartiality. And that's why statues of Lady Justice is blindfolded in the West, because the law is applied the same for everyone impersonally. Now, we may complain that God could have structured our universe to our favor so that we can, say, belch out CO2 into the air with impunity, but that's a different issue. And considering that according to modern science, many different parameters to the physical laws are so closely interconnected that even slight changes would make this universe lifeless, that complaint uh, may be missing the mark. But for now, we want to return to the original question, which is, what is God doing then when God is pronouncing judgment upon humanity at various points in Genesis? And I want to emphasize that I'm only dealing with examples from the primeval history of Genesis. There will be cases in the Bible where God seems to inflict punishment personally to individuals or people for their wrongdoings, but we won't get to that until quite, quite later in the Bible, so we'll leave those aside for now. So God may be speaking impersonally in how reality unfolds, but when God speaks forth judgment upon humanity, so when Cain kills Abel or when first human couple eats from the forbidden tree and God is speaking personally to them in response, uh, what is happening there? Well, to understand what God is doing, uh, here's an example. Say you got drunk and attempted planking on the edge of a light, unstable table to show off. And because of your weight, the table flipped over and you did a face plant on the floor. Yes, it's complicated but strangely plausible scenario. Now, reality is God speaking and that includes various laws and forces of nature involved in this event. So the law of gravity, which is what made the table flip over and had you do the face plant, and the laws regarding electromagnetism, which is involved in the composition and the hardness of the floor in respect to your face, both are God speaking. And if you had friends who are laughing at you and recorded you on their phone and uploaded on YouTube for the entire world and posterity to mock you, their psychological motivation is also how reality unfolds. However, God is not speaking the law of gravity or electromagnetism or the workings of the human mind and their humor just so that you will do a faceplant from the table and have you get mocked by your friends. And God won't stop speaking those laws, that is, make it not work, just so that you won't do a faceplant. So in a sense, what happens to you is what God speaks impersonally with the ample participation from you. But God can speak personally to you regarding what unfolds. 
Now, remember what we explored in the 10th and this extension episode in the first season about what it means for God to speak to us personally. God may be speaking uh, as perhaps a voice within you or a quiet thought at the back of your head that speaks the truth. Likely, it was what you also knew to be true, that it's a bad idea to get drunk and do a plank on the edge of a table that's likely to get flipped over. Yet, you ignored it. Then reality unfolded the way it does and you did a face plan and your friends recorded it and uploaded it. Now, if you can still hear this voice of God within you as you fail, I would translate what it would be conveying to you in the following manner. And let me do it in the literary King James version of God's pronouncement in Genesis. So God's voice would be saying something like, Behold, now I will have you fall prostrate before your friends. Plunge you shall from your perch atop the table, and you will taste blood in your lips. And you will bear the mark of mockery in perpetuity before your fellows, and strangers shall shake their heads at you. For you have done this in defiance of what I have told you and what I have declared regarding gravity. Yes, this is meant to be humorous, but only because the circumstance is silly. But when God pronounces judgment and punishment upon humanity for matters that are far graver in the first chapters of Genesis, this was also what God was doing. God is declaring how reality unfolds and will unfold as consequence of what human beings have done. That is God's judgment upon humanity. And this is what God was speaking when God spoke to the first human couple after they ate the fruit of their distrust of God, of reality, and each other. And this is what God was speaking when Cain grew resentful of his brother and murdered him, which we'll cover next episode. This is what God was speaking when human civilization becomes so corrupt and violent that everything unravels. And the message of Genesis is, this is what God still speaks whenever we are doing the same thing. So please join me next time as we consider what God may be speaking as we explore what happened to humanity after their fall and their severance from God on our enmity of life and the story of Cain and Abel. Thank you for listening and please continue to support this series by following, subscribing, and sharing this series with others. That really helps. And you can support this series also by buying me coffee at www.buymeacoffee.com slash paulsoc. The link is provided in the episode description. 